What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Unrestricted. I am your host, Ben Lieber. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. Uh, my very special guest this week is a man of many, many things. First and foremost, he's an athlete. He's an entrepreneur. He's an innovator. He's a speaker. And just recently now an author. He authored the new book that you can find at Barnes & Noble and Amazon as well, Driven to Ride the True Story of an Elite Athlete Who Rebuilt His Leg, His Life, and His Career. His name is Mike Schultz. People in, in his world call him Monster Mike Schultz. He's a 10-time X-game gold medalist in snowbike, snowcross, and motocross. He's also a 2018 Pyeongchang Paralympics gold medalist in snowboard cross. He was the opening ceremony flag bearer for the United States of America. He also competed in the 2022 Beijing Olympics where he took silver in the snowboard cross event as well. And he won an ESPY award for the best male athlete with a disability. Everybody, you have to listen to this episode. You're going to be blown away by this guy's his drive, his perseverance, his creativity, and his his will to never die. Um, it, it truly is one of those situations where he was facing life and death, and um, he was at a crossroads where he had to make that choice. And once he made that choice, he never looked back, and he never let it hold him back. So everybody, please, please enjoy the inspirational guy that is Monster Mike Schultz on Unrestricted. Mike, what's going on, man? It's good to see you. Hey, Ben. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a uh, it's summertime's here. It's uh, the turn of a new season, and uh, yeah, I'm pumped to be chit chatting with you. It's been a big year. But uh, isn't it funny now when you say that around here in Minnesota? It's everybody seems, and I don't know if you felt it. Everybody just seems happier. Yes, yeah that that is what's so great about you know living in a place with the four full seasons. It's like a reboot. You restart. You know, new things coming and. Uh, yeah, I, I love it. That's what I love about Minnesota. Although April, April did suck now. I don't know. You're, you're up in the St. Cloud area, which, you know, for, for most of the listeners know, but for some that don't, it's about you know an hour and 20 minutes Northwest of the twin cities. And I'm sure you got as much rainy weather as we did. April was terrible. April, I think to me was worse than February because you couldn't go outside at all. They were tempting. You're tempting to go outside because it's 50 degrees, but it just rained and was cloudy every single day. Yeah. I mean, well, I, you know, I just chose to go somewhere else. I, you know, I had all kinds of travel lined up. I'm like, well, okay. I don't feel so bad. It's crummy back home. Anyway, we just got, we just got like ping pong size hail yesterday. It looks like it's uh, maybe coming in again later this afternoon. So yeah. <laughs> Craziness. Well, that's, that's probably a good segue into what, to what you're doing and what you do. So you are a man of many things. I mean, obviously, number one, you're an athlete. Um, you're an athlete, you know, extreme sports athlete, if that's the right term. But you also are an author. You have a book out, Driven to Ride, the true story of an elite athlete who rebu rebuilt his leg, his life, and his career. You're an entrepreneur. You're an innovator. Uh, you go on speaking assignments. Dude, I, I understand that if you want to get away from the, the Minnesota weather for a few months, <laughs> you're the type of guy that can do that. You seem to be kind of everywhere all the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot going on. It's uh, 
it's kind of nonstop. I mean, we just had, you know, recently a huge year with the Paralympics in Beijing and the buildup to that um, was the priority, but, you know, somewhere between training and competitions, uh, you know, I got to do my best to keep up with my business Biodapt and, and my book launch, which was in uh, January, towards the end of January while I was in Norway. Um, yeah. And then find some time for the family in between. So it's, uh, I guess that's the biggest challenge of it all is, is trying to manage everything and do the best I can with each one of them. You know, a lot of people talk about a lot of professionals want to pick other professionals brains. And I'm not saying professional athletes, I'm just saying professionals and in, in their careers about work-life balance. You know, I've gone to a lot of speaking things and, and listen to other people and, you know, everybody seems to ask the person that's speaking, Hey, how do you, how do you balance your work life, social, all that stuff? And for most people it's, Hey, I have one primary job and then I have a family, but the primary job is a, you know, is a very intense full-time job. But as you just laid out, you have a business, you have your own personal brand. You are, are an athlete that complete competes at an Olympic level on a worldwide stage. Um, how do you find balance with all of it? I, yes, that is the question. Um, I guess like the biggest thing is, is finding the priority, the priority list of each one of them. Um, you know, in the past year and a half, it was preparing for the Paralympic games, which was just here last March in Beijing, China. And, um, so I, you know, I kind of schedule my day around that. Uh, for example, like my business Biodapt, where I build performance prosthetic equipment. So like when I'm at home, I'll spend like the first half of the day in my office, in my workshop. And then the afternoon is allocated to training, um, and then finding a couple hours for the family as well. Um, and it, it, it's, it's hard. I, I do my best to compartmentalize each one of those during those timeframes and not get distracted, uh, which is a daily challenge to try and do that. But, you know, I try and stick to it. I got, I got a checkbox, you know, I got a checklist and I love checking boxes off my checklist. Like I, I feel like I'm accomplishing things and that helps me keep focused. Um, but then by the end of the day, I usually have more boxes added than I have checked. So <laughs> it's a daily process. So let's go back to your, the start of your career. You are, you were a, you know, completely, I guess, lack of better term, a completely able-bodied professional snowcross racer for snowmobile racing. And, and then you had an accident in which kind of altered your life, but let's go back to just like you being a, a, what we would say completely quote unquote, normal, you know, snow, snowmobile racing competitor. Did you have this sort of checkbox even then? Like, were you that regimented with your training even back then? Or is this something that you had to evolve with now with your business and now with the Olympics and all that stuff? I, back then, you know, so my pro career was from basically like 2003 to 2008. And I had far less to, to on my plate to worry about, you know, I didn't have a family. Well, I had, you know, my, my girlfriend at that time, Sarah, we'd been together since high school. Um, so she was my number one teammate, but basically I had a summer job. And then the winter time was totally focused on being the best athlete I could be. And I, I loved it. It, it, uh, you know, I was competing with the best of the best in the world on a snow cross track, which is like motocross 
uh, on snow on snowmobiles um real high intensity high flying action packed sport and where physical fitness is definitely a huge component of performance because you know we're wrestling 500 pound machines and you know we're traveling our our season lasted from uh competition season was from like thanksgiving through the end of march and so we're we're on the road all the time and we're training on track and we're racing every week and i think we had like um 10 well depending on the season about 10 rounds of racing throughout the year and i loved it it uh you know what i you're i mean you know exactly what i'm talking about when it's you know the the highs highest of highs and the lowest of lows you know when things go bad they can go bad in a quick hurry and it's tough emotionally to recover from it and then but then the next weekend everything comes together and you find yourself on the podium and it's uh it just feels so good and it's those tough parts that make the good ones feel so good and so i was i was loving it i was uh you know taking the 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 tough the tough moments uh you know fairly well and loving the great ones it was it was an amazing lifestyle but back in 2008 obviously everything changed early december 2008 um you you fly off the track and you have a major major accident um would you mind just kind of retelling that story and and what which ultimately altered your your life forever yeah i i so my 2000 2007 2008 season was a bit of a rocky one and over the course of the summer i um decided to change my environment and join a new team and started working with uh, a whole new group of, of guys and um, had a professional trainer that we were working with going into the season. So I was like, you know, I had a new motivation, a new fire. And, you know, I, I knew there would be some, some um, transition time, learn how to ride a new sled. I went from Polaris and joined Skidoo factory team. And uh, the first round was a little rocky the uh, you know just kind of working the bugs out in the second round in a qualifying race yeah i was uh got a horrible hole shot or start to the race and so i'm charging through the pack trying to make some moves and you know i just uh, i hit a hole and it tossed me sideways and i landed feet first on the ground i was probably doing about 40 miles an hour i suppose and on impact my left knee took the bulk of the hit and um my knee joint just uh, hyperextended 180 degrees in the wrong direction and caused a, a severe compound fracture. And uh, I guess the, the, the worst part about it was on impact, it, it severed the popliteal artery. And so I was bleeding out on the side of the racetrack. And um, yeah, it was, it was a rough moment. I, the EMTs got there and by the time they got there, my entire pant leg was, was full of blood and, um, I knew it was, it was serious at that moment. And, um, <clears throat> we went to the first hospital, uh, which was just down the road, but they, they weren't a trauma center and they couldn't deal with my situation. And, uh, they tried to life flight me to a trauma center, but a snowstorm moved in, I had to get in an ambulance and go from Ironwood, Michigan, across the top of Wisconsin to Duluth. Uh, it was two and a half hour ride in the ambulance and and my blood pressure was bottomed out so that i couldn't have any pain meds so i just had to grit and bear it come um, on but, no way yeah it was i wish i would have passed out man it was um it was 
it was the toughest two hours that I've ever had to deal with up to that point. Um, and you know, the one, the one positive was my wife, Sarah was, um, she was a nurse at that time. And so she's, she's been through a lot with me, you know, through my racing, I've been injured, you know, a lot. So, you know, she kind of understood how to, how to take this. And, and I guess the, the best part was she kicked, clawed and scratched her way into the ambulance. You know, they usually, they don't let that happen, but she, she wouldn't take no for an answer. So she was sitting in the front seat of the ambulance and uh, we finally made it to Duluth. And at that point I could, I could kind of semi-relax, you know, I, I knew I was in good hands. I, I knew that there was a team of, of doctors there that were going to be able to, you know, start making me better. And, um, over the course of the next three days, we, I went through several surgeries and they did some tests, um, on my foot. And at this point, you know, I'm three days into it and, you know, I got all this external hardware holding my leg together and he's like, well, we got, we got a, a decision to make here. And he rubs a tool across the top of my toes on my left foot. And I couldn't feel anything. And he's mm. explained that the nerve was severed and my health is deteriorating really fast because uh, I'm having major circulation problems. And um, my kidneys were shutting down because the tissue had started dying in my lower limb. And he said, in order for you to survive, we're going to have to amputate your leg just above the knee. And at that point, yeah, I, I, at that point, it was a complete surprise to me that, cause that word never popped up over the previous days. And my wife had been talking with the doctor. She knew it was coming. Um, so yeah, for me to hear that was, uh, that was, that was a rough moment. And you knew that was the right thing to do. Like, did, yeah. you, did you try to fight it at all? Or did you just, did you know by the look and by the tone and by the information you were given, like, you didn't really have a choice. It was either you keep your leg and die or you amputate and live. Yeah. He, the way he explained it is like, I've got no feeling in it. My kidneys are shutting down. I basically, what happened is like, it's like, you're not going to make it through another one or two surgeries with the condition you're in right now. Um, so he's like, we think this is what we got to do for you to keep moving forward. And, and, and we accepted that and, uh, you know, one step at a time, you know, to recovery. And that was the first step. Now, if I understand your story correctly, you know, when you go, you're back laying on the track and the accident happens, there was a moment where when you said you hyperextended your leg 180 degrees on a compound fracture that that means that your foot and your boot were on your chest is that correct yeah yeah it uh i remember as i'm tumbling across the ground that my toe came up and kicked me in the nose and i got a chin guard on my helmet and i i just like vividly remember that and then when i stopped moving on the side of the racetrack my my leg was laying on my chest and just as a reaction, I grab it and it was so surreal, you know, having my boot in my hand and I just, I, I chucked it down by my other foot just as a reaction. It's like, it's not supposed to be here. And, and it was, yeah, it was, it was crazy. It, it was kind of like an out of body experience. Cause I'm 
holding my leg in my hand and I can't really feel it. I felt extreme pain at my knee site, you know, uh, right at my knee joint, but yeah, my foot. Can you, can you, have you ever had a pain like that ever? No, no, I I've broken, you know, I don't even know how many bones up to that point, but nothing was that extreme. Like just that overwhelming pain across my entire body. Like I couldn't even process. Um, so I knew that I knew it was, uh, yeah, this is different. I'm so surprised that you, you actually didn't pass out, not from just the pain, but even from, as you said, your blood pressure going down so low, they couldn't give you pain meds. I mean, it's a testament to you. So I think your, your mental strength, I would have passed out. <laughs> I was like, I'm checking out you guys. Uh, let me know when we get to the hospital. Yeah, I, I wanted to believe me. I, I, I wanted to in, in, uh, that one of the things that kept me kept me going was my wife being right there helping me breathe through every breath and uh she was labor and delivery nurse so she's she's good at she's good at coaching <laughs> yeah, she, that, that yeah. situation in high pain situation and then when you wake up from the surgery where they actually took your leg what is that sensation like it was well, there was a couple things happening. It, like I did notice like the first moment I moved my limb, it just felt like, like it was light as air, you know, cause you don't have, they basically removed like 16, 17 pounds of, of, um, you know, bones and muscle. And so to move your limb with nothing below your knee is just, it's a very weird feeling. Um, but it was quickly overtaken by just, enormous amounts of phantom pain, uh, which I dealt with for about two months, uh, unbearable at times. And just this gripping nerve pain, um, that you just couldn't get away from. Uh, I struggled the first two days in the hospital. They, they threw every medication and narcotic at me. And, um, it was, it was a long couple of days. It, um, yeah, I don't wish that on anybody. It was, uh, it was tough to make it through. And I remember some of the the narcotics they gave me, the side effects were almost worse than the pain was. I'm having these hallucinations as I'm in the hospital. And I'm, you know, I, I'm thinking I'm in this downstairs dungeon and the mad scientist is doing tests on me. It was like, ah, it was, it was wild. And I'm like, get, get I I'll deal with the pain. I just, I, I can't deal with this, these hallucinations. Cause I knew I was hallucinating, but I just, it was, ah, oh, yeah, no, not again. So it'd be nice if you were having hallucinations like, oh yeah, I was like in this fairy land and there's like <laughs> pixies running, you know, flying around and you're like on some sort of bad mushroom trip or something, but no, you're, <laughs> you're in some dungeon with a mad scientist. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> and the doctors are probably like, yeah, that's pretty normal. Yeah, well, the, the, the funny thing I figured out later was, uh, so I wear contacts and so I had to take them out for all the surgeries and stuff. And because I, I wasn't seeing anything clearly, like everything was fuzzy. It just, it looked like there was, my mind said there was snow on everything and everybody had this beard and it was, <laughs> it was and then I later find out, well, it's just cause I couldn't see anything. <laughs> it was, it was all fuzzy. Uh, they couldn't find you a pair of glasses. <laughs> I know. I, I think everybody kind of forgot about it. Cause like, I didn't even realize that my vision was, you know, not like normal. Cause I was just hallucinating. <laughs> oh man. 
Yeah, I got glasses a, a day or two later after my family came up from uh, from from home. So that I was I was good after that. <laughs> That's so funny. So I can't imagine what it would be like to process all that information. You wake up, and I think you know a lot of us have been have been under anesthesia before, and it's that that to me is a wild trip where you know, you don't even remember falling asleep. And the next thing you know, it's a, it's a whole different time frame, and, and situations have changed. And for you to go through multiple surgeries, knowing that the next surgery you're going to have, you're going to wake up and you're not going to have a limb for the rest of your life. Um, then you wake up and it's like, you know, all of that happens in a split second. You know, you, you feel the medicine go in, you wake up. Now it might've been hours later, but you wake up in a split second and you don't have a leg. And now you've got to process this whole new life, this pain, uh, all the what ifs, where do we go from here? You know, not to get, you know, super dark, but how, how long was it where you were sort of mentally in a bad place before you found a new motivation to say, you know what, screw this. I'm, I'm going to take this opportunity and I'm going to, I'm not going to let this hold me back. I, yeah, it, it kind of varied because it, it, um, you know, the first few days was just focused on survival basically. Um, and then those, those ideas of the things that I would no longer be able to do started creeping in my head. And that was, you know, that was probably the toughest thing, but I remember having a conversation with Sarah, um, and talking about, I'm going to make something good out of this and I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm not going to be upset that I got injured doing something I loved. This is what we're dealing with and how do we move forward? And the first step to move forward was to physically recover. Um, and I just kept busy. I, I, I looked at what I knew as far as recovery and that's, that's what I did. I just, I tried to keep busy and obviously there was some, some real roller coaster days, uh, you know, dealing with the mental side of it. Well, whenever that would creep in, I would just, I would go to my gym. I would use, uh, you know, do some rubber band work or, or even, um, you know, sit on my stationary bike and just pedal with my one leg. And, you know, that's the way that I could move forward. And for, yeah, for the first month or so, I had no desire to get back on a racetrack. Um, I, I knew that I would never be at the pace I was before. So I was like, I don't even want to go there because I'm going to be embarrassed. And I was one of the best. And now I'm not going to be anywhere near that. I was going to, you know, I wanted to continue to, to ride for fun. You know, I assumed I'd have to get rid of my two wheels, my motocross bike. I mean, that's, that's my passion. That was my number one thing to do. And then snowmobiles in the wintertime. And I knew I'd be able to get back on the snowmobile and, and I figured I'd have to ride four wheels. Um, but then in, um, see, it would have been March and April. Well, it actually in February, I got back on my snowmobile before I even had my prosthesis. And, and that was, that was a big turning point because I, I realized that I was focused on the challenge of getting faster through my entire career as an athlete. It's like, we're always focused on the self-progression it's not really about the speed we're going. And I get back on my snowmobile. I'm like, I love this challenge of trying to get better. And that's, that was kind of the shift. And yeah, I might have to reduce my standards of speed 
but I want to, I want to get back on this thing and I want to see how fast I can go. So I got back on the racetrack or practice track with my teammates, um, that season. And then the big motivator came up with, uh, uh, summer X games, adaptive supercross, where they got supercross racing for amputees and paraplegics. And when I heard that, I'm like, I'm in, this is, this is my new thing. This is, I'm going to put everything I have into it. Did you, was there ever that moment of you feel like you're like taking a step back? And I know that, that they, they built that, uh, that category for people like you, but you know, you obviously know it's not at the highest level. Like, was that something that you had to deal with as well? Um, well, I guess the way I looked at it as I was progressing and progressing and that was more important to me than, than being at the top. But the first race I went in, I was a little worried because we had a, a qualifying race, um, right? I needed to get on the racetrack. So I went to a, a small race in Brainerd Friday night series. And it was the first time I lined up since my injury. And this, this was, uh, see April, May, it would have been May. And I just lost my leg back in December. And so I didn't want to be that guy who's tipping over, causing everybody to slow down. Oh, there's that one legged guy. He, uh, he can't, what's he doing out here? He shouldn't be out here. Well, I was able to ride pretty good right away, you know? Um, but I did tip over to the left all the time and because I couldn't put my foot down to brace my fall. <laughs> right. So yeah, I found, I, you know, I was on the ground a few times and that was frustrating. I mean, that was, that was a reality check. Um, but then, you know, I just kept focusing on how do I get better? And and then realize that, well, I'm, I'm progressing, I'm progressing. Well, maybe I could get almost as fast as I did. And over the next couple of years, um, you know, kind of skipping a bunch here, but I got back into racing snowmobiles and I actually won a pro vet championship on the national tour on snowmobiles against able-bodied guys that are, you know, they're, it's the vet class. I mean, some of them are still ripping. So like, I, I was able to get back at it, not, not at the full pro level, but, um, it was, it was, that was probably one of, one of my proudest achievements was winning that championship. It was, that was 2012. Unrestricted is proud to partner with Jack's cafe, an iconic Minneapolis steakhouse family owned since 1933. That's four generations of Minnesotans who have made their memories at Jack's Cafe. If you're looking for a date night, a family night, happy hour, a place to eat and drink before or after a game, or just a boozy weekend brunch, head on over to Jack's Cafe in Northeast Minneapolis. Need something more private? Well, Jack's has five private dining spaces for groups ranging from 25 people all the way to 250 people, and you have to see their new outdoor dining space. Rain or shine, it's the freshest new outdoor hangout spot. Just make sure to bring your appetite. This original steakhouse has all the essentials. Steaks, chops, ribs, their famous prime rib. But if you're in the mood for fish and seafood, well, Jack's has you covered. Take your pick of fresh lobster right from the live lobster tank. And Jack's has a one-of-a-kind trout stream right in the backyard. Yep, you want fresh trout? You can hand-select and net the trout that you want. I guarantee you've never tasted something more fresh. So make your way to Jack's Cafe and check them out at jackscafe.com. That's J-A-X-C-A-F-E.com. An original steakhouse serving steaks, not trends. You know what I find fascinating as you tell the story is it doesn't seem like you ever you ever were 
really apprehensive about getting back on any sort of motorized device. You know, you just went through this catastrophic injury, life-changing event. Um, and, you know, everybody says, hey, you got to get you got to get back on your proverbial horse. You know, when you when life, you know, throws you down, you got to get back up. But sometimes there's a lot of people that say, no, I, I can't like I can't I can't get over the fear of getting hurt in some capacity again that severe. And it seems like that was never really on your mind. It, it was, it was a big topic there for a while when, when uh, Sarah and I were discussing me starting to com compete again, when the whole X games opportunity came up and we, we talked about it a lot and I was apprehensive a little bit, but we, we looked at it in such a way that we were going to strategize. Like we're not going to push it too fast. We're going to take small steps um, to reduce the risk risk management. That was, that was the first time in my life to where I had a real conversation about risk management. And from that point on, it's, it's, it's continued to be a huge part of my program, like risk first reward, you know, what steps are we taking to reduce the risk? Um, and, and we love the lifestyle of uh, traveling the country with like-minded people, like very motivated, hard charging people. And you don't find that um, in many places. I mean, like, you know, exactly what it's all about is being, you know, traveling the country with your teammates and they all have a single goal that they're all shooting for. And to be amongst people with that same mindset is uh, it's really special. And it's something we didn't want to give up. I'm going to guess that you were probably blown away by the, the amount of support you got from your, from your peers and from that community. Correct. Oh, absolutely. We had, we had a big fundraiser, um, just a, a couple months after my injury, the whole snowmobile community got together up in Brainerd and we raised a whole bunch of money at a silent auction, just ahead of a big race weekend up there. And that, you know, the amount of emotional, support and and the financial support to help me get back on my feet so to speak was uh i mean that i love minnesota and i love the community around here because everybody is so giving and um yeah that that's that was a, a a huge thing for us and that's what kind of allowed me to to get started with the development of my prosthetic leg um later that spring and uh yeah, I, I'm forever grateful for the support that uh, that both uh, myself and my wife got with, from everybody. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a natural transition to, you know, as I sort of introduced you there with you're an entrepreneur, you're an innovator, um, you created your own company, biodaptinc.com, uh, that's the website, but you quickly realized for your, for what you wanted to do to compete in the sports that you are in the regular prosthetic legs just wouldn't cut it. It would, that, that could get you, that could make you move around. That could get you to walk. That could make you feel somewhat normal, but that was not going to cut it for being a high level competitor like you are. So I, I find your ability. It's funny how life, I think sometimes just works out that way. You create these unbelievable prosthetic limbs. And I, I urge everybody listening to go to your website and just check these things out. They, these things are so freaking high tech. Um, I just can't believe it, but, but your, your interest, your, 
your passion in fabrication and working with metals and you're a creative person and, and you've always been interested in this stuff, it, it melded at the perfect moment in your life to create a company for people like you performing the sports that you do and you're doing it out of your own brain and out of your own garage. Yeah, thank you. It, it's, <clears throat> yeah, my, like you said, my other passion besides being an, an athlete is, is being creative and building stuff with my hands in my workshop. And then, so that's, that's, that's one of the ways that I dealt with, you know, those depressive thoughts was I got to keep busy. Um, I wanted to get back into riding again. I researched equipment. There's a ton of stuff for like track and field sports, running and jogging and that kind of thing, but nothing for high impact. There was a couple components for like skiing and mountain biking, but they just didn't have the versatility and the, um, the mechanism to, to really work well for what I needed it for. And so I'm like, well, I know how to build stuff. I know how to tune and um, develop suspension components for my bikes and snowmobiles. And I know body mechanics through working with all my physical trainers and physical therapists over the years. So like I have this wealth of knowledge to solve this problem and I'm going to go to work. I turned mad scientist in my shop for a month and, um, and it came out with the moto knee to get me back on my motocross bike. So I could race X games later that summer. And over the course of that summer, I realized that, well, this is the first time I got to hang out with a whole bunch of one-laggers and everybody's using just their everyday equipment for, for riding. And I'm like, man, there's, there's just this huge gap in here. And well, I'm probably not going to be a professional athlete anymore. I thought at that time. And so I got to think of my career path and I, I really think I can make something out of this. So in 2010, it would have been a year a year and a half after that, I, I decided to, to pull the trigger and dive into my own business with no experience. I mean, I, I learned a lot in a short amount of time and it kept me busy. And the most rewarding thing was, you know, seeing a look on people's face when they get to try out my equipment for the first time. And just, it, it'll, it opens a whole new doorway of movement for them, um, under high impact conditions. Like, you know, on the motocross bike or on the mountain bike, flying downhill or uh, snowboarding. Um, it, it just works really good. And I wanted to create it with versatility in mind so you could use it for so many different sports. It, it ain't worth a crap for running or jogging. Uh, he, he ain't, yeah, he ain't <laughs> but, you know, like when you need to engage your quadriceps to absorb a jump or a bump, um, that that's where it really comes in into play. And, and it has a, a natural range of motion. We use a, a Fox mountain bike shock in it, um, uses air spring as your quadricep muscle and then hydraulic hydraulic, uh, shock fluid in it to absorb those impacts. And it's really highly tunable. And so it's like, we use the same unit for all the sports. We just calibrate it a little bit different and align it different. And, um, it's allowed me to continue doing what I absolutely love to do in all the sports and open new doors for me, but also, you know, helping out a lot of others, um, you know, achieve a higher performance in, in adaptive sports. I was on your website, like I said, and I'm, I'm looking and you have a, a close up of, of just the foot and ankle joint on, on a lot of your products. And, 
I'm looking at it and, and because my brain doesn't work like that. <laughs> I'm like, I'm Mike, how did you come up with this stuff? Like all the, I mean, little shock absorbers and like, where do you, where do you put, you know, that joint and, and that screw and that I'm like, I, I'm so fascinated by just the mechanics of what you came up with. How many different iterations did you have to go through and rough drafts? Did you have to go through before you found your, your final, your final first project? I is the, the Moto Knee. Uh, so I built one prototype right away. I just use it for a few weeks. Um, and that, you know, that was purely prototype purpose, knowing that it was going to be a short term thing, proof of concept kind of deal. Um, so from there, I built two more versions of it and functionally they were all really similar. I just, uh, adjusted a, 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 a bit of the geometry here and there to accommodate the full range of motion and then some, uh, alternate adjustment options. And so overall there was about three versions of it before I stuck to the one that I'm like, this is going to be the production unit. Um, the foot came a little bit later in 2012 is when it officially launched. And I probably made it about four different versions of that. And, um, the foot was, you know, the foot was geometry wise. The original is, was pretty simple. It was finding the right materials to hold up for the sole plate. Cause I, I, I didn't want to have to wear a boot over top of it. So, um, you know, finding the right materials that would hold up in a motocross condition, you know, with uh, sharp foot pegs and mud and water and, you know, uh, sand. Um, so that was probably the most difficult part. Uh, you mentioned now they look, they look substantial, but I'm guessing you're using lightweight materials. And you said, you know, when you had your surgery, your first, you know, the, the surgery to take your leg off, you were you know, blown away by kind of how easily you could lift your leg. Cause you just lost what, you know, 12, 15 pounds of, of muscle and, and tissue and stuff. So are these prosthetics ab about the same weight? Cause they look like they're super heavy. Uh, they're, they definitely look heavier than they are. Um, so like the knee joint is a little over three pounds. The foot is under two pounds or uh, just over two pounds. Um, so like, comparing it to what they removed of tissue, it's, it's a fair bit lighter, but it feels heavy simply because it's hanging off of your body. It's not directly connected. Um, so like the, the knee system that I use for everyday walking around is several ounces lighter than that package. Um, but for, you know, if I were to be running with it, I would like, I would use some even higher tech materials to reduce the weight, but all the activities that we use this equipment for is you're standing on a platform of some sort, whether it's a pedal or a foot peg or a snowboard. So the weight is definitely a factor. We want to keep it as light as possible. Um, but it isn't, it doesn't uh, inhibit performance as much as like, if you were to be running with it, um, we got to, you know, keep in mind the cost of materials and the machining process or manufacturing process of materials. Like for example, we're make it mainly out of uh, 7,000 series aluminum with stainless steel fasteners to hold up in, in uh, water and mud and all that good stuff. Um, you know, we could lighten it up if we went to titanium, but the, the cost would increase exponentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and we'd have to redesign it to accommodate those type of, uh, performance advantages with lighter, stronger material. Then the price would go up. 
Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess like any, any creator, I want to get your, your reaction to this, like any creator, when you do something, it doesn't have, it, it can be, you know, somebody bakes you a cake, you know, or cooks you some food you're kind of standing over next to the person that's tasting it. And you're kind of like anticipating like, Oh, what's the reaction going to be? What was that reaction when you had that, that first person that wanted to try your prosthetic that was so much different than what they were normally used to. And they stood on it and actually strapped in or, or I I believe it was a snowboarding buddy. And um, what was that feeling like as a creator of like, yeah, I, I created that. And you saw the genuine reaction. Yeah. Yeah, it was so the very first time I'm trying to think, I think it was maybe uh, a good friend of mine, Jim Wozny. He got me into adaptive racing right after my injury. And so he was apprehensive, like to try it because he knew, you know, he'd been using the same thing for several years. So he didn't want to change it up. I'm like, you got to try it. He's like, well, that thing just looks heavy and bulky. And, and I'm like, just, just give it a try, give it a fair shot. And I was a little nervous, you know, because I didn't know what he was, uh, you know, going to think of it. And I remember, so we were on snowmobiles the first time. And, um, I remember the first few laps, he was just like, I looked a little uncomfortable. And then by the third or fourth lap, then I could start to see his body movement change. And he comes back and he's like, I don't like this thing. I it's, it's just kind of kicking me all over the place. And I'm like, okay, well put your leg back on. So he put his normal leg back on that he had been using and he makes it a half a lap and he's like i hate this thing i want yours back so that was <laughs> that was a really cool moment and um and i get to see that every time that i work with somebody and they they put on one of our devices and and you know they they kind of they hop around on it a little bit and they look around and then like oh yeah yeah. Oh, this thing is awesome. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's a super rewarding thing to be able to do. Um, and, uh, yeah, I love it. I love it. it it's good stuff. Now I know on your website, you have, you're basically all lower leg. Have you tinkered around with anything with upper body stuff, hands, arms, anything like that? Uh, not yet, but we're actually in the process of developing, um, a unit right now for, uh, I think he's, a either mountain bike or, or motorcycle of some sort. Um, so we're, we're developing an elbow that's kind of, uh, utilizing some of our lower limb technology. And so that that'll be exciting. Um, you know, we'll probably have something here ready to hand off to them, uh, probably in about a month or so. Um, and that'll be the first of it. I don't know if we'll really start marketing that direction yet, but, um, you know, it's more of a custom one-off thing. But we get, yeah. we get asked about it all the time. And I'm like, I got, I got a whole drawing board full of stuff that I want to do for lower limb yet. And that's, that's, you know, where my expertise is at obviously. And uh, so to open up a door into the upper limb would be uh, definitely something in the future. Um, so we're just starting to, to, you know, get into that a little bit right now. Yeah. Well, maybe, uh, maybe somebody listening to this is, uh, they'll be inspired to help you out and take some stuff off your plate and, and expand <laughs> your business creatively, because uh, I can imagine you get these orders and you're like, Oh man, like I, I've got all this other stuff going now. You want me to make another, a, a different type of joint and like really sit down and sit with the drawing board. Like you probably just don't have the damn time. to. Do I know it. that's, that's one of the hardest parts is when I have to say no. So my, in my, it's funny. Cause I got a small team here um, that works with me here at the office and shop and, and they're all like, 
say no, say no, you don't have the capacity. <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah, I think I could do, you know, I think I could find time. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh shit. I, yep, I bit off more than I could chew there, but uh, you know, that happens occasionally, but you know, it, it motivates me to work harder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I certainly don't want to, to, uh, gloss over and not give the respectable amount of time to you as an athlete, because that's, that's what you've always been. And you went from high level, able-bodied to a gold medalist and champion in, um, adaptive sports you know, especially with the Paralympics, it's amazing. You've, you've participated in, in two Olympic games along with tons of, of X games events, but you're an Olympian. I mean, does that, I'm sure that's, that's settled in your mind already, but it's crazy to think there's not many Olympians that you get to meet and talk to. And, and you're a two-time Olympian. Yeah, it's, so my, my my career in action sports, you know, at X Games, I you know I did uh, three different sports, uh, ten time gold medalist at X Games in snowmobiles, motocross, and snow bikes, and that's a huge stage. It's I mean it's the world uh, action sports stage. But when I got to put on the red, white, and blue jersey for Team USA the first time, it man, that, that just puts things at a whole different level. Um, you're representing your country, uh, in a sport in front of the world. And for me, it was really unique because I didn't become a snowboarder until after I became an amputee. So I started this whole new sport and this whole new venture, um, in 2014 is when I really pulled the trigger on it. And when we were in, in Pyeongchang, I got to be the flag bearer going into opening ceremony and the, you know, the entire, um, U S Paralympic team voted me to be that person. And, you know, that was a very proud moment. Um, and then when it all went right in border cross a few days later, and I won that gold, it, it was the most overwhelming feeling of accomplishment I've ever had by 10 times or a hundred times it and it it honestly it didn't have a whole lot to do about snowboarding it was just the entire journey to get there and then here i am in the red white and blue you know just one gold for for the usa it was it was the most amazing feeling and and being on top of the podium and listening to our national anthem play um yeah. Yeah. It brings tears to my eyes every time I think about that moment and what it all means in the big picture of things is incredible. Um, and then knowing that, that many of the other athletes that were competing there, a lot of my direct competitors were wearing equipment that I created in my shop. Um, so it was just this culmination of an enormous effort on multiple level levels that all came together when it mattered most. And it, yeah, <laughs> it was so awesome. I, I was ready to retire after Pyeongchang. I'm like, it can't get any better than this. I'm just going to ride off into the sunset and life is going to be good. <laughs> well, I can imagine that's like everything really just came to the perfect storm of, of emotions and, uh, athleticism. What was, 
how did, well, let me put it this way. How did you, how'd you hold back the emotions and your mind wandering the night before the gold medal race? Because as an athlete, you, you know, the what ifs like, all right, gosh, if I, if I, if I hit all my marks and I have a clean run, it's good, good chance, good chance I could win. But also at the same time, you don't want to be distracted by that. You know, it's really, it's really difficult sometimes to hold back your mind wanting to wander and, and sort of fantasize about the what ifs and, but you got to stay focused because you, you know, you've worked so hard to get to that point. You can't just let the few hours before sort of like take you off track. Yeah, that was, that was the, one of the toughest parts. And it was one of the things where I look, you know, I look back at my long experience as a professional and being able to deal with those moments to where, you know, things could totally get distracted and, and, you know, off course, or, you know, knowing I've been into similar positions, high stress, comp competitive situations. And like, I consciously thought I'm like, okay, I've got more experience being on a big stage than most of these other athletes, um, not at the, at the Paralympics, but, you know, in the spotlight, so to speak on the biggest competition days. And so going, you know, the night before I'm, you know, going through my routine, which is extremely important, uh, just to stick with your routine and not do something new. And so I'm like, okay, I, I got this, I got this a visualization, you know, through the race course. And I'm like, okay, I'm good. The next morning, I'm a freaking mess. <laughs> my, my stomach is turning and I'm just like, I can't think straight. And I'm just, I'm like, geez, Mike, get it together. You, you're, you've been through this kind of stuff, but it was, it was funny because I haven't, you know, I get nervous before every competition to a certain level. And this was like, poof. it was like, I've, this is my first time ever being, you know, in front of a camera and, and uh, like, yep. Yeah, okay. But then once we got to the venue and started, you know, getting our training runs in, then it, then it all come back together. Um, and I was, I was, I was really focused from there forward. And the one thing about snowboarding is like, so I've been into motorsports. I always got handlebars to hang on to. And, and I know that the, the really unique thing about me and being a snowboarder is, you know, obviously not doing it until after I became an amputee, I was you know 30 years old when I started snowboarding or just maybe 29 or something when I, I snowboarded for the first time. And so learning how to do that in a safe way down a snowboard cross course was like the biggest accomplishment, you know, for me as an athlete, because in the motorsports, yeah, it was this long progression of, of getting better. But the snowboarding was like in four years, I went to basically a beginner to the best in the world in, in our, uh, in our sport. And like, for me, that was one of the proudest things, uh, of my athletic career was being able to adapt and learn something new and become the best at it. Um, so that, yeah, I took some hard hits. Oh my gosh. It was, uh, yeah, it was it's hard. It, yeah. The ground hurts, <laughs> especially when you're over 30, you know, it just like progressively oh, yeah. gets, you get a little more brittle and, and, you know, you don't, you don't just pop up like you did when you're 20 something. <laughs> well, especially given the career that you had before you're, you're, it's a high impact sport. You've broken bones before, like your body's already beat up. 
And then, and then you're like, Hey body, guess what? We're going to learn something new and we're going to fall and it's going to hurt and we're going to fall fast and hard. Uh, so just buckle up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If anybody, you know, anybody listening has learned how to snowboard, those edges come up quick and uh, you're either on your face or on your ass and it, it hurts. (laughs) I think that's the one, the perspective that you just laid out. I want people to really think about that. Think about starting something new that you've never done before. And in four years, mastering it so well that you become the best in the world at that. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be a piano, a musical instrument, um, a chef, you know, that to me, and I think that you stated it well, has to be one of your biggest life accomplishments through anything. I, whether you're whether you're in your situation as an amputee or an able-bodied person, you know they always say, you know the 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 newest thing. It takes ten thousand hours, right, to to really master something, to be proficient at something. And you took those ten thousand hours and shattered it, and went above and beyond in four years to stand on the podium and have the national anthem of the United States of America playing like that is freaking insane. It's hard. It's really hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah, it, it is. And, uh, and that's all on equipment that, that I had to develop in order to allow that to happen. And it, yeah, it's, I'd look back at it and that's why I really wanted to write the book so bad was just to, just to, show that story or tell that story and all those details that led up to that moment. It was, um, I'm like, I got to put this down on paper because I don't want to forget it. And, you know, that was the motivation with the book. And, um, you know, and my wife and I sitting down with our co-author, Matt Higgins, just telling these hours and hours and hours and hours of stories. And it, it brought back so many great memories, so many like challenging memories and like, we lived a hell of a life so far. It's, it's, it's been amazing. <laughs> it's been amazing. Absolutely amazing. So once again, it's driven to ride as your newest book. Could you please tell everybody where to, where to find that and where to buy that right now? Yeah, you can, um, Amazon, uh, go online, Amazon, you can get it there and Barnes and Noble online. Uh, there's a few Barnes and Noble stores that carry it, but, um, I haven't seen it on in actual stores a whole lot. So just search it out online and, and uh, yeah, check it out. And if you like it, please give it a review because uh, those definitely help to spread the word and, and get it out to more people. Um, yeah, it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, the whole book writing process. It took us, uh, you know, from the moment we decided like, I want to do this till the one I had, till the moment I had one in my hand, it was just under three years, I think. And, uh, it turned out really well, just under three years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We could have sped it up, but we wanted to launch it at an opportune time. We kind of missed the first window. Um, and then we're like, well, let's just wait for the next big opportunity to to share Cause it, you know, we could have done it in a year and a half. Um, but you know, the process gets drawn out this and that. And then, um, when I decided I was going to go to the Paralympic games in Beijing or, or, you know, plan for that, I'm like, well, let's shoot for, for launching it between the summer and the winter games, because they're only six months apart in this unique year. So, um, we pushed it another six months to kind of fit in that timeline. 
I mean, I'm sure you've done you've done a lot of interviews and a lot of podcasts. I can't imagine the amount of depth and detail that you have to go through when you sit down with the co-author and he's just grilling you about every single second of your life. It it is because like I've I've done a lot of speaking over the years and you know telling my story in a you know in 20 minutes to 45 minutes maybe even an hour at some points and you 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 just skip across the details that really make it an interesting story and so like thinking you know being in the hospital okay what did it smell like you know what you know what did you see what are some things that you saw in that moment you know you know, whether it be in the hospital or at the, the morning of the race and like just trying to pull those memories and those, those, the, the environment, you know, the, the uh, details of the environment, which is really what makes a good book, a great book is when you can really tell a story so that the reader is able to visualize the environment they're in. And my co-author, Matt, he did a phenomenal job on that because you know, I just talked his ear off, but he was able to, you know, use the vocabulary to really capture those moments and, and make it really special. And I think that's so true when you read any book, it's, it is the, the depth of detail with all of your senses, because when you are, yeah, he's right. You know, when you're, when you're being wheeled into the hospital, what, not only just like, what do you see, but like, what do you sense? You know, all your senses are going off and you're, you're feeling the pain of the leg, but you're also thinking about, well, what is going to happen next? And, oh my gosh, I, that, that smell, it smells like a hospital or this, you know, this cot that I'm laying on, you know, <laughs> smells dingy or something, you know, and that's in every step of the way I had to feel like that. Even when you're standing on the podium, you know, I just picture you standing on the podium in Pyeongchang and it's, it's just in my mind, you know, it's this picturesque moment, but when you're there, you're also seeing things, you're looking around, you're looking at people's reactions, um, you're fighting your own emotions, you know, the, there's the smells going on as well of what the environment was like. I'm sure that was super intense and kind of fun to relive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was, there was lots of tears shed. Both good and bad <laughs> through the yeah, whole it's like thing. therapeutic. It's like you went to get, <laughs> you got like a you got a free session in therapy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So how much, how much did your experience at Pyeongchang really help you for the Beijing Paralympics that just took place? Oh, it was, it was huge. Um, to, because there was so many, like everything was new or there were so many new experiences in Pyeongchang. And so in Beijing, I knew what to expect, uh, for certain things. And, uh, you know, that, the, the COVID definitely presented some different challenges for us, but in the big picture of things, everything was as good as it could have been. Um, like as far as our, our venues, it was, you know, the, the venues were amazing. Like the race courses were the best we've ever ridden on. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And I guess the biggest difference between Beijing and Pyeongchang was the level of performance from all the athletes across the board like everybody stepped up the game and my personal performance from this year comparing it to Pyeongchang exponentially faster um mm. and everybody across the board was so it's like in in Pyeongchang there was there was three of us that were 
you know, a fair bit ahead of the rest of the field. And then here in Beijing, my field, there was, there was five riders that were like consistently within a second of each other on all the courses. So it's like, you make one tiny little mistake and somebody's going to pass you. And, and at, at the Olympic level, you know, you see that all the time at the Paralympic level, you know, there's typically a little more gap between athletes and, but this year it was, it was so close. It felt like I, it, like my old pro racing days to where it was, yeah, the, the competitive level was so close and exciting. Um, so I ended up silver in border cross and then fifth in bank slalom and my fifth place, I was five hundredths of a second off the podium. Um, so there was five yeah, there was hundredths five, of a second, five hundredths of a second on a course that's a minute 12 long. And that comes down to like within like three or four inches, maybe, yeah, maybe it was two or three inches difference of crossing the finish line, uh, bank slalom. Cause we, uh, it's a race against the clock. It's the best of two runs and there's 21 or 22 bank turns in it. And yeah, it was just amazing how close the times were. I was, I was bummed and I, I wanted to be on the podium so bad in bank slalom, but it was just, man, it was, I was so close. I, if, if one turn, if I would have tightened up my line in one turn, you know, it could have been the difference. Uh, first place, he was out a little bit. He had, I think it was about a second lead over second place, but second, third, fourth, and fifth were, they were within a few tenths of a second. Um, and then I was five hundredths off a third. <laughs> so as you relive that experience and you're just kind of heartbroken and you're like, Oh, so close. Can you, do you know what turn specifically you're like, ah, that damn fourth turn. If I just would have tightened that up, like, was it that obvious in your mind? No, it wasn't. It was by far my best run of, of the week, like between training competition. It was like, I hit every mark that I was aiming for. Um, and then I did watch the video afterward. I didn't even watch it for a few days later. I'm just like, yeah, yeah. Uh, cause I'm like, I did everything I wanted to do there. And it just, it wasn't, it wasn't fast enough. Um, and so after looking at the video a few times, there was two turns where if I would have just tightened my line up within a foot or so, uh, you know, tighten it up a, a line a foot inside more than I was you know, that, that would have likely, likely done it, but yeah, it's done and over with now. <laughs> well, yeah, at least you, at least you have that. I know you're, you're probably super disappointed, but at least you look back and say, look, that at the time, that was the best I've ever done. So you yeah. got to be proud of that in the, in the biggest moment of your career for that, for that event, not many people can say, Hey, I, I outperformed any other time I've ever done that. So yeah, I, I missed out on it, but dude, you killed it when you had to kill it. Yeah, I, I was, I was, I was proud of my performance because I, I increased my time by, I think it was about a half a second, uh, for my first run. So like, dang, yeah, this is, this is good. I, you know, I crossed the line. I'm like, oh shit, I'm just in fourth. <laughs> and then, and then my teammate Noah came in, came down right after me. And then he beat me by uh 200, yeah, 200 of a second, bumped me back to fifth. I'm like, God dang it. But, <laughs> but the coolest thing is, so it was like, yeah, I was, I was moping around for a few minutes and then, and then I did my first interview uh, with NBC and we, 
got on the topic of all the other athletes using my equipment and you know, my mood changed really quick. Cause it's like, okay, you know, I didn't perform, but, but I still have this amazing part of it. And there is 26 athletes from 11 countries wearing equipment. I built in my shop at BioAdapt, and, um, in my entire field of border cross the final and the, uh, um, semifinal, or basically it was the, my entire field of 16 riders, all but two or three athletes are all wearing my equipment. Um, so that yeah, that's, that's rad. what it's all about, man. I mean, everybody, everybody in every profession talks about leaving their mark and leaving their, their legacy and whether you're competing or not, I mean, you're changing these guys' lives and you're changing the sport. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that all these times in the progression of these sports, the speed of the sports, um, is better because of your equipment. Yeah. It feels pretty damn good to, to have a, a part in, in that progression. Absolutely. You know, the one thing that I'm, I'm jealous of, of, of people that play and compete in Olympic sports and sports really outside of football, you know, global sports, and we're talking, you know, baseball and basketball and soccer and stuff like that. Um, as a former football player, we we're only around basically American athletes. You know, we get a few Canadians, you know, you'll get a few people maybe from Europe and Australia, usually punters and stuff. Um, but I think it'd be so fun and fascinating to go to something like the Olympics where you get to compete against people from every part of the world and become friends with people from all, all around the globe. I think that's, that's a super fascinating aspect of what you do. Yeah, that it's, it's one of the highlights and it's one of the motivators that kept me going, um, this neck, you know, uh, up to Beijing is, uh, so we, we all travel the world cup tour, you know, you have six to eight world cups around the world and yeah, it's, it, it's really neat getting together, you know, once a month or whatever it is and hanging with this truly international global crew and, it, it's yeah, it, it, I love it because it, it's unique. There's not many people in the world that get to do that um, and make friends with global people, you know, a global group. And, you know, some, some of us or some of them, um, you know, we, we've got communication barriers a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so, so there's lots of uh, smiles and high fives and, you know, thumbs up and uh, nodding, you know, good job and this and that, keeping it very simple communication. Um, but then, you know, again, there's, there's so, so much fun. Like, I think my favorite groups of people are, the, are, are Great Britain and Australia. Like they're always just making us roll from laughing so hard, you know, with their one-liners and <laughs> like th those two groups are, are like the funnest people to hang out with on a, on a Saturday night. <laughs> I could kind of see that. I think the humor from, I, I like a lot of British humor, you know, yes. people from the UK, whether it's on TV shows, like, I don't know if it's just the accents or whatever, the, the timing, what they say, the dryness, sometimes the quick wittedness, like they, I can see how that could take place. And basically Austra the Australians are just, you know, the renegades of the UK anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's why that's consistent. <laughs> yeah. That's why, that's why that makes sense. Um, because you've traveled the world so much, if you could pick a place that's outside of Minnesota and outside of St. Cloud, where, where could you and Sarah and your daughter and your family live? Ah, uh, man. 
I think the, the, my favorite environment that I got to visit was probably New Zealand, like just oh. the landscape, um, and the simplicity of, of New Zealand. Like if I could choose to live in an environment, that's probably what it would be. Cause they got mountains, they've got snow, they've got oceans, they've got water, uh, wildlife. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a cool place to be. All right. How about, how about cuisine? Hmm. I don't know. So I, I keep it pretty simple with my cuisine. Like I, oh man, I do like Asian, Asian cuisine, like, um, Chinese having like real authentic Chinese in China. That was, that was pretty cool. We got, um, and then, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I could pick one certain, I just, man, I, I, I like my grilled chicken breast and lettuce and <laughs> and pizza like that's 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 my that's my staple i like i i yeah i'm very simple and boring when it comes to food <laughs> but that you know what for for this the last couple of years that makes that's good though you like chinese food i've heard i've heard a lot of olympians are like ah oh, I, I don't i don't like the food over there like going to the olympics is gonna be fun but i I'm stressed about the food and what they're going to have to offer. But for you, you're like, Hey, this is, this is my wheelhouse. Well, there, there is a problem with that because I, I, you know, I said authentic Chinese food. We got to go to a restaurant, um, at a hotel. Um, we were very lucky to find this place. We could actually go out of our, our, um, athlete village. Um, so the, the cafeteria in the, the athlete village. Yeah, no, not good. <laughs> no, yeah. That was not up to par. It was, uh, that was a daily struggle to find, to find the perfect, uh, consistent food that would, uh, that would keep you going. Uh, oh, man. But that's all I'll say about that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I Which is unfortunate. My, I, I enjoyed my Chinese food at, at that authentic restaurant. It was, it was amazing. So did you have to sneak out to do that? Well, um, eh, not, it was still within the fences. <laughs> it just wasn't shared with anybody. We kind of found <laughs> it on our own. Uh, we were still in the bubble. It was just, uh, it was kind of where a lot of the staff stayed in the offsite hotel. So, <laughs> oh, gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> maybe, so, maybe, had, so maybe had a glass of wine or two while we were there, you know, cause we couldn't have oh, any, yeah. any alcohol in the, uh, in the athlete village. So that was a nice treat. Yeah. So what's next for you? What's, what's on the horizon this summer and beyond? All right. Now this summer, you know, for the next few months, it's just all about business and family and just, uh, taking, taking the time to reflect on what we've all accomplished in the last year. Um, and by doing that, it's lots of trail riding on our horses and riding some dirt bike here and there, no racing, but just, just kind of riding and having some fun. Um, and then working on some equipment with BioAdapt uh, is, you know, kind of the the goal for this summer. We got some new equipment we're working on. And as far as my competitive career moving on, um, I haven't decided either way. I'll probably wait till later summer to decide that. Um, I know, you know, the one number one question is, well, are you gonna are you gonna shoot for Italy in 2020, mm -hmm. uh, 26, 2026? And I'm like. Well, <laughs> I was going to retire in 2018. Um, I, I enjoy the process of being an athlete. I'm, I'm an aging athlete. I'm, I'm 40 years old right now. And, 
but Italy is really awesome. That was one of my favorite places to compete. And the environment in Italy is, I, I absolutely love it. I would love to bring my family there. Um, so I just got to decide if I'm going to, you know, bring them there as a competition environment, or maybe we'll just go on vacation there and keep it more simple. <laughs> yeah. Maybe go as a spectator and who knows, maybe, uh, maybe you, Maybe you're working for Team USA. You can go there as a coach or something, or maybe even yeah. a broadcaster. It's fun. My, my daughter, Lauren, she's eight right now, and she's heavy into gymnastics. So she's super fans of Team USA gymnastics. And um, she she's like, Dad, you're going to Italy. You're going to co- keep competing. And I'm like, wow, I, I don't know. It's, it's such a grind for the year and a half to two years ahead of the games. Like, you know, the year of the games, I'm, I'm on the road 170 some days. And uh, it's just, it's just taxing. So everything else in the world for me has to get put on hold for that timeline and, or get, you know, put secondary. And so, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see my, I got to well, check got three boxes. It, I got to be competitive yet. I've got to enjoy what I'm doing and I got to be making some money at it. So if I can check those three boxes, then we'll probably keep going. <laughs> well, like I said, you've got some time to refresh and, um, you know, let's, maybe you'll just be busy with your book tour and, and pushing that and letting people getting that in people's hands and enjoying your horses enjoying your family. You've, you've earned some time to take a deep breath, dude. Like you, you've definitely earned uh, some R and R. Well, thank you. And yeah, it's, uh, it's been a good ride. I love, I love sharing the story with everybody. Cause that, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of people that get to see, things from a perspective of a Paralympic athlete. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm really excited. I got to share some of this with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, man. I know that, um, you know, you, you're not, uh, we didn't really talk about this, but you're not feeling your best. So I appreciate you taking your time, you know, to hang out with me and, and retell your story, which you've told a bunch of times, but, you know, hopefully there's a lot of people in this audience that, that haven't heard it. And uh, dude, you're, like I said, you're an inspiration. I mean, not, not many people can, can have the accident and the situation that happened to you and, and quickly turn their life around and become, you know, a master uh, of what they do. And, and again, change lives with a business venture that, that you set out and and created on your own in your own workshop. Uh, Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. I guess I'll, I'll leave you all with this dream big work hard and always remember to enjoy the ride. Yeah. I love it. Well, thanks Mike. (laughs) I appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. See you around. All right. See ya. Well, that is going to do it for us here at Unrestricted. I have to thank Mike for his time. I hope you guys really enjoyed that incredible story. It is so crazy. Uh, just him walking us through the accident and then how he literally rebuilt his leg and has gone on to be one of the most accomplished Paralympians uh, the United States has. So a uh, big time thank you to Mike and his time. I want to thank you guys as the listeners. Thank you guys for the feedback. Go to BenLieber.com. You guys can reach out to me. I'll do my best to get back to you as well. I love all your suggestions for not only to make this podcast better, but also the topics that you guys have thrown at me as well. And I do want to thank Jack's Cafe. Go to J-A-X-C-A-F-E.com. Please go there, whether it's whether it's a date night you got a small gathering, maybe it's a business lunch, maybe it's a wedding reception, maybe it's a sports banquet. Jack's Cafe can handle everything. It's a historic steakhouse 
right there in the heart of Northeast Minneapolis since 1933. You will not be disappointed. Hey, and it's summertime. Go out and enjoy their new rebuilt patio. It is the best place. I'm telling you, it's the best place for happy hours to enjoy the Minnesota summer right there in the patio at Jack's Cafe. So go to jackscafe.com and enjoy yourself where they are serving steaks, not trends. So that's going to do it for us here at Unrestricted. Thank you guys again so much, and we'll see you in the next one. See ya! Yeah.